I'm milling about with Narada Michael Walden, and we are in Manhattan. Yes, I am, Robin. Thank you. And I'm very happy to be here. And I feel like being very zen here in New York, keeping a good focus and uh, bringing from, you know, the light from California in my heart over here, you know. What's your background? Like, I, I know that you have so much musicality, but what about when you were a little boy? Like, what were you all about? Yeah, I'm from Kalamazoo, Michigan, and it's from between Chicago and Detroit. And I'm very happy that I come from a family that loves music. They always had a lot of records playing. You know, we're way out in the middle of nowhere in Kalamazoo, but there's records playing. So I felt connected by hearing and seeing album pictures, you know. And uh, my, my parents were young. My mom was 19. My dad was 18. My mom was 19 when she had me, too. I like that, though. See, because I felt like, you know, uh, I was down with, she was down with, we were down together. It wasn't too much of a gap. We could still be grooving together. And all her sisters and brothers were up under her. She was older than six, so they all were in the same kind of vibe of playing me and showing me and playing with me. Hear this and listen to that. And so it was very educational in my upbringing. Yeah. So who introduced you to the drums? I always knew I wanted to beat on something. Pie, pie tins, tabletops, anything beat on. And, uh, and I think maybe my dad secretly wanted to be a drummer, too. And then for Christmas, I got a Toyland drum set. Young, five years old. And just, the, the heads were made of paper. And it, they wouldn't last very long. But for me, it was orgasmic to play on them things until they would grow up, you know, break up. So that was really the birth for me, of just loving that feeling. Even to this day, I get that feeling. But you have experienced so many different types of, of worlds. So what was your first biggest break, would you say? John McLaughlin, you discovered me. Okay. I mean, I play with a lot of different people, but... And I love everybody who I've worked with. But if it had not been for Mahavishnu, John McLaughlin, in 73, I met him backstage at the, in the Hartford, Connecticut, playing with Birds of, Birds of Fire, Mahavishnu Orchestra, Billy Cobb, and all this. He was so kind to me. I said, dude, whatever you just did on that stage now, I want to be like you. I've never seen anything like it. And I haven't. And quite frankly, no one had. What he landed upon of mixing Indian rock with jazz rock and blues or something otherworldly. I said, please. And he said, okay, give me your number. And he, How old were you at the time? I was like 19. I said, my name is Michael Walden. I, I play drums. I said, I told him. I said, and I want to be like, so he said, give me your number. I gave him a number. And a week later, he called me and said, come to meet um, my guru. I brushed my little hair back, shaved my little beard. You had hair at the time. A lot of hair, <laughs> beard, you know, put on some little white clothes. And I went down to the meditation and I saw the guru. And I kind of felt what he was talking about because here's the guru singing and playing. It was a very kind of a peaceful feeling, but intense at the same time. And all the girls were sitting on this side with their Indian saris. All the boys were dressed in white on this side. I kind of just found a place with a girl because I was on his chair left. I sat down and listened to him sing. So then afterwards, we were asked to go upstairs to this room where he had a library of books. And then buy a book or whatever. And I had very little money. But I bought that book, Dance of the Light Part 2. And as I came back downstairs, here is the guru standing there. And he looked at me like this. He says, so you are Mahavishnu's friend. And I said, yes. He said, you would like to become my disciple. And I said, I think I'm ready. And then he just meditated on me for a long time, looked at me like that. And then he smiled. He said, I accept you within my heart. Kind of walked away. And I felt it inside me. Did he give you the name Narada? Many years later, three years to be actually, three years later. What, do you know what it means? Yeah. Narada means supreme musician. And in India, there is a saint called Narada. He appears, disappears, 
plays the vena, like a sitar, and plays all music devotion for God. So he's known as being a spiritual person, but kind of a funny person too. A mixture. Yeah. How did you make the transition then into the pop world and, you know, working with from art? Michigan. I'm from Michigan. So in Michigan, Chicago is Curtis Mayfield, right? All that music, blues. And on this side is Motown and everything in between. When Johnny Mathis was hot, all that music, Patty Page, anything that's hot comes through Michigan, right? So we're really music lovers in Michigan. So I know that music. As a producer, I could easily produce pop music because I knew it so well. So who was your first break into pop music? What was the first artist that you worked Stacey with? Stacey Latizal. She was 12 oh years old. Oh, my God. We're going. 12 years old, yeah. And uh, I knew Henry Allen, owned Cotillion Records, wanted a hit for her. And I said, well, let me do four songs. And if they're good, then you, I could, I'll finish the album. If they're not good, you haven't lost that much. And he said, you know what? Well, you're hot right now. Go do it. And I did. Let Me Be Your Angel, Dynamite, Jump to the Beat, and My Love in the first four. And he said, finish the album. And, and she had this massive smash. Let Me Be Your Angel, 11 years old. And then we did Love on a Two-Way Street, next album. And we kept going like that, you know, Little Stacy. And then my phone started ringing from Clive Davis, and you name it. Will you produce this person? Will you produce? And I said yes to everybody, and I, could, I blew up. <laughs> I blew up, man. That's what happened. Would you indulge me and just give me, like, a little memory story about some of these people that I'll just mention their names? Of course. Okay. Uh, let's start with Elton John. Elton John's favorite female vocalist is Nina Simone. And I learned that through working at Carnegie Hall and Sting's Rainforest show, where we actually brought Nina Simone in. And, and she was so the diva, almost only going to live in like another year or two. But really, you could see Nina Simone in their eyes. And as a little kid, I loved her and studied her music. You know, the Live at Town Hall album, where she sings Cotton Eye Joe and Summertime and those pieces. So then here's Elton just going crazy for her. And, and she stops in the middle of the song and says, bring me a tissue. And Elton runs out with a tissue and gives it. And she goes, puts it down and finishes her song. Just very eccentric like that. But Elton was just like this about her. So when you ask about Elton John, I, I, I'm always deeply touched by his love for Nina Simone. And he calls me Sergeant. Because in the studio, I produced a song for him called um, uh, True Love with Kiki D. And he called me Sergeant. Just like that, he said, you're a sergeant. Yeah, because I made him do more than he was used to doing. You know, more takes than he wanted to do. So, so you were like the drill sergeant. Yeah, yeah. So. How about Lionel Richie? Lionel Richie, I have two songs on my new album that we wrote 20 years ago, Tear the House Down and uh, Me and My Girl. He's um, a Gemini, a fast talker, a mind on fire. Just you almost can't, can't keep up with him. He's just nonstop, flowing, flowing. And a brilliant man can be sensitive on the piano. Penny lover. And just deep, at the same time, can do the most outrageous party of music. So I have a great respect for him. And he was always kind to me. He's one of them guys that took me under the wing. He didn't have to, he just did. It's just a So I'm very humbled by him. You mentioned earlier, what about Sting? Sting's a genius. You know, he's effortless at everything he does because he is that good. He can play the great bass and sing high notes. And my, my most favorite thing to do with him is on the Rainforest shows. We do a song called Tears of a Clown, and he'll, he'll hold this note 
for the longest time. And I know when to cut the band off when I see the back of his head go beat red. Once it was beat red, like it's almost going to break open, whap, they cut the band off. But not until. <laughs> Do you love Trudy? I love Trudy. I love Trudy. She's, she's my second wife, my soulmate. She says it as it is, and she's kind, and she's class and soul and gets all of it yeah. and, and can help the world and does help the world. Yeah, yeah. So I'm a fan. I mean, there's so much talent in that family. I don't know if you've seen Mickey Sumner act, his daughter. A little. I can't say I really know all her stuff, but I know she's gorgeous and she's always kind to me when I meet her and see her. But I need to study more of her acting right now. What about Barbara Streisand? I can't believe you worked with Barbara Streisand. I did, honey. At a time when she was going through the breakup with Don Johnson. She dated Don Johnson? Oh, yeah. And it was a big to-do for her because she did things with him that she wouldn't normally do. Like riding a really fast speedboat. And a lot of speed things, right? That was uncomfortable for her. But she wanted to be down with Don, and she was, right? And they had a thing. But then when it broke up was when I got with her. And we became friends at her house talking about all that. Mm. And she was really soulful. Mm. And I would have known that that side of her, you know. We think it's a big star. And she is, but she's also a very real person. And I bought her a cool pair of boots with gold in them. And she liked that. And so then, at the studio, I put 100 candles in the studio. The song I was doing with her was called We're Not Making Love Anymore from the Greatest Hits album. And it was very kind of fitting because she wasn't making love with Don that time. And there was sadness. But the song required a certain rhythmic cadence. And then I realized that wasn't always her strength. Her strength is you have these massive notes held forever and the emotion. But when it comes to like these pop records being in a certain kind of way, it was good I could play, go, to, go to the piano and play the piano and, she, and walk it through where she can then rela- relax about it. Okay, now I know what you're talking about. Because I would say to her, you know, uh, your thing with the Bee Gees, and we got nothing to be guilty of. You know, your biggest records. She said, yeah, but I don't like them records. I said, but Barbara, that's your biggest record. Babs. You know what I mean? So we had to kind of really talk it through and find our common ground. And once we did that, we were really cool. I, I want to work with her again. I love her. And last but not least, and then we'll talk about your music, okay. Whitney. Whitney Houston is electricity. Living, lightning electricity. That's how I've always felt when I was with her. Supreme confidence, but like this kind of fire. Leo, fire. You know, there's nothing can get in the way of anything. I'm dating myself now, but I was at her very first coming out party. That the bottom line? Yes. I was there. You were? I was there with you. Oh. I was there because I had done How Will I Know. And that was big. And she blew it out. She was such a little girl with this gigantic voice. Yeah, that's what it is. And I was always taken by how beautiful, how striking, young, 19 she was. You know, just supreme, super, super, super model with all this control. That's unusual. Usually, you know, you know you're one or the other, not both together. Mm. But you could tell that her mother, Sissy, really spent time with her in the basement, going over all the little riffs, all the little nuances. So that she's saying, hey, everyone of those little notes was perfectly in tune. And she was so, like I said, confident. Like on playbacks in the studio, right? She'd be like this in the chair. 
You be, that's me. I'm, I'm right with Whitney. Just laying back. That's how Whitney was. Just completely cool about things. And I would say, aren't you nervous now we're doing the second album, the sophomore jinx? You're so big that if this album doesn't do well, she just no. Just, they love me before they love me now. And of course, she was right. That was always the way it was for her. It wasn't later on that things started kind of raveling, you know, with addiction and, and Bobby Brown and the TV shows and all that kind of stuff. It kind of got messy. Yeah. But for the longest, she was really doing really well. And I think, if I'm, if I'm honest, if I look back, running around as fast as they made her run around was almost inhuman. To be here, there, there, on, on your best game all the time. Grammys, this show, that show, record. I only have, you got two hours to make a hit. Come in. You got two hours to make a hit. Fly me, I'll meet you. It was just, it was too much for anybody almost. Mm-hmm. So I could see maybe if the, the, the drink or the whatever it was, was her way to kind of calm down. Because it was just, it was just really a lot. Mm-hmm. And you got to think, other superstars prior to her generation didn't have it like that. She's the first. Michael Jackson, the Madonna, they're the first of that era to just be like, Next. That's how their career was. It was like incredible. Yeah, yeah. It's almost it's, it's almost like better to be behind the scenes than out in front, I think. Well, I was behind the scenes, and I saw it behind the scenes. And I didn't know how she did it like that. And I suggested to her, I said, well, why don't you take some downtime, you'll put your foot down, and go to my favorite place in Kona, Hawaii, called the Kona Village Resort. And she did. And Robin told me she just slept like seven days straight. So thank God, you know. Mm-hmm. But... I don't know how she would do it. And then we found a magic. We could, we could work really fast. And she goes, it's like, she said, it sounds like a smash. I said, it is a smash. Just add one thing and one thing is done. So with that we could work that fast together. That's how we did so many records together. If I couldn't go fast, I wouldn't have been the guy. Because that's all you're, all, you're, all you're given sometimes. It's like right now, half an hour with me or half an hour with that person, whatever. And you want greatness out of that half an hour. So let's talk about your music. You have a new album called Evolution. This is sort of like a very personal album for you in many ways, isn't it? Yeah, because I have children now. It tapped my that heart. It changed you. It changed me. I didn't understand. I've always, you know, hear parents going on about their kids. Oh, great, the kids. But now you got to hear me going on about my kids, see? Because they are incredible. I mean, until you're a dad on night shift, when babies are really babies. Like my little girl, Kelly, because she had kind of grown up in the daytime. But at night, she's really a baby. And now my little one, my newest one, Kayla, she's teething now. So she's really hurting at night. So that really pulls at my heart. It makes me a better human being, makes me a better person to help take, my, take care of my babies at night. You know, give them some milk and pat them and help rock them back to sleep and all that. And it brought my heart up to write songs about them and, and they are the future. It was always Stevie Wonder saying to me, you know, have kids, have kids. And I never want to have kids. You know, pass on your legacy. I never wanted to do that. But good Lord sees it differently. So here I am. So t- talk about some of the songs that really describe what you went through personally. My single right now is Billionaire on Soul Street. It's a new way of saying I'm feeling really good in my life. Because it really is true. That's how I feel about my having my children, you know. And other people might, might feel that way about making money. But now they have kids, I go, no, kids are where it's at. Say evolution. 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 I'm Show us how, how everyone 
So I'd have all these Grammys and all these things, but none of that matches what I have now. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't have known that, you see. Interesting. So where are your Grammys? <laughs> Speaking oh, of house, Grammys. Here in my house, I have a, my wife uh, bought me a wonderful case for a lot of my things with a light so it looks really pretty. And Whitney's in there, too. Yeah. So what's your biggest accomplishment, personally, musically? What would you say? Well, having children is now, I think, the biggest thing right now. Right. And for music, I have to just thank John McLaughlin for first discovering me, looking out for me. Without him, I couldn't be here. I want to thank, you know, Henry Allen for letting me produce Stacey Lattisall. Thank Clive Davis for letting me produce Aretha Franklin, the Queen of Soul, Whitney Houston, and a lot of things that came out of Arista Records at that time. And, um, and I'm grateful to all the artists who just entrusted time with me. Because, you know, in the studio, like right now, this is like, close, close, close that door, this is like a studio. And you have to almost like get along with somebody. So I want to be thankful for that. Now, you talk about Aretha. I read that she might have a musical on Broadway in the she works. She should have one. If she doesn't, she should have one. I mean, she's the queen of soul. And why is she the queen of soul? She's the queen of soul because she really is what you think she is. She can hear everything. And she can sing everything. And she damn near knows everything. And I'm going to tell you, she's scary. Because at one point I went to her, she has a, she has a, when she records, she has like a, a music stand. So I went out to make a correction on a, on a lyric. And honey, there was no lyric. It was all memorized. I mean, everything was memorized. Every nuance she wanted to bring, the ad lib, every little thing was something that she already thought about. And it's brilliant. So I, there was nothing I could, I, could, I could correct. It was just, I had to go walk away. But then she can be nice to you because she knows she can be scary because she knows in her eyes that is that fire of, uh, you know, the things you got. And then she'll kind of calm it down and she'll be nice to you. Where are you staying? Why are you staying there? Why are you staying on the poncha train? <laughs> you should talk normal stuff. We should write a book yeah. what about it I'd love to I have one book I wrote on my work with Whitney only just when after she passed I wanted people to know how badass she is was and how much work she put into what she does so you bow down and give her respect don't let her go out on the bad notes you think she's only an addict she became the biggest star in the world for a reason so I wrote about how I made those records but now I'd like to make a book on my, my life and uh, as you say it'd be wonderful I'd love that sure yeah yeah so what are you looking forward to coming up? What's, what's next? I'm looking forward to right now. Being here in New York is, is, is stimulating for me. Um, to be part of things I've seen in life still turns me on. I just walked down the street past Atlantic Studios where it used to be. It's not there anymore. But that was the place. That was the place where Aretha made them records, where Ray Charles made his records. I made my first records with Amir Erdogan and in 76, 77, and saw the Bee Gees making their first disco smashes with Arif Mardin and met the Beatles and all that. I mean, just, I mean, just these incredible things happen right around the corner from here. So this town is magical to me. And you think about all the apartments with the house parties that have happened, with people drinking and having good times, and Audrey Hepburn with Breakfast at Tiffany's. I mean, it's all happened here. So this is the center of the universe. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to be here. 
I want to know how you met the Beatles. I want to hear that story. I, 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 met, I didn't meet all of them. I met, I met Ringo, Ringo George at Atlantic. Then I met Paul later uh, in the um, L.A. Forum, the big, the big place down in the basement before his concert because I was hot with Freeway Love and Who's Zooming Who, and he wanted to know what I produced him. And I said, I'd love to meet you and talk about it. And we met. And it was lovely meeting him. Not John Lennon. I didn't meet John Lennon. He's the only one I didn't meet. Yeah, uh, Me too. I know, I know. And he, the reason I love him, he told us that he loved Mary Wells as his favorite, favorite female vocalist out of Motown. And, of course, I, we all knew Mary Wells. I'm from Michigan. Like, you beat me to the punch and all that music that Smokey Robinson wrote for her. So I can see the connection of Mary Wells and John Lennon, how he sings a certain style. And then Little Richard being his very favorite male vocalist. You can see the style career in, in him and in Paul. Right. So I like that. They, they, they acknowledge black uh, artists of America. When they weren't really known in America so much, when the Beatles came, they made us know those people. Mm-hmm. So I like that, that they stood up and said things that needed to be said all along the way. The long and winding road They took LSD, they pushed it by what they saw. You know, they were smoking a little grass bottle, they would push it by what they felt. They weren't afraid of that. And I love that people can get big in the world and not be afraid to be big, be big in the world. Sometimes, you know, you get big in the world, you gotta, you know, kind of back it down so you can kind of think it's gonna, you can stay big and say certain things and be nice. But they kind of went that way. So what, what do you want listeners to come away with after they anything hear this? Anything they want, really. I, don't, I never want anything for a listener to write. I want listen to be inspired, obviously, but beyond that, it's up to them to feel what they feel. But I know from my side, I want to give, I want to give music from my heart to your heart, you know, with power and sensitivity. What would you call your autobiography? Wow, some the power and the majesty. I don't know why that came to me, but I like all that. I like all that majesty talk. I don't know what the hell it means, but I like it. All right. Well, I look forward to reading that. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. You're great. You're great. Wow. For those who can't see, Robin's smile is delicious. She's like a smiling strawberry. When I first met her, I thought she had some red hair, but it's more strawberry blonde, to be accurate. But her face is really quite red. Because <laughs> you're making me blush. Yeah, I love it. Like a strawberry. You're beautiful, you. Aww. Yeah, blessings to you and to your family. Thank you. Always news. Always refreshing. Always candid. Always billing about. Robin Milling delivers what celebrities are saying to you. you. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.